Well, good morning and Merry Christmas, New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor here and uh, it's not exactly good to be with you in this medium this morning, but it is better than nothing. And uh, while I wish we could be gathering together in person to continue celebrating the birth of Christ, it's better to be safe than sorry. And so this will just have to do. Well, today is the final Sunday of our By Faith sermon series. You know, after spending 12 Sundays working our way through the various Old Testament saints mentioned in Hebrews 11, uh, 12 Sundays anticipating the arrival of Jesus, finally, today, we're going to be talking about Jesus. And you likely celebrated Christmas yesterday. You celebrated Jesus' arrival yesterday, but we're not done yet. We are still celebrating today. And so we're going to wrap up Hebrews 11. And our passage for today is Hebrews 11.32 through 12.2. So we're actually turning the corner a little bit into the next chapter of Hebrews. And so listen now to the reading of God's word. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we dive deeper into this passage, we'll have three points. One, the great cloud of witnesses. Two, the founder of our faith. And three, the perfecter of our faith. And so let's begin with our first point, the great cloud of witnesses. Imagine you are at a courthouse and there's a trial going on. And in the courtroom, you have a judge, the jury, the prosecution, the defense, spectators. Uh, But then off to the side of the courtroom, there is another room. And in that room, there are detectives and scientists and experts in various fields like forensics and blood spatter and DNA sequencing. All these people are witnesses. One way or another, they are going to bear witness to the facts of the case in order for the jury to render a judgment. They're witnesses. Our passage in Hebrews mentions a great cloud of witnesses. 
Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do these things. And those witnesses, the people that Hebrews 12.1 is referring to, are all the Old Testament saints that were mentioned in Hebrews 11, the previous chapter. That's the great cloud of witnesses from Abel all the way to King David. All the people we've been talking about in the sermon series. And more. As Hebrews 11.33-38 puts it, those who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, received back their dead by resurrection, were tortured, refused to accept release, suffered mockings and floggings, chains and imprisonment, were stoned, were sawn in two, were killed by the sword, were destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandered in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves, of whom the world was not worthy. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now that word, witnesses, might initially make you think that they're watching you. Like you're at a track meet running a race and all of them are surrounding you sitting in the stadium witnessing your race, which would be pretty intimidating, right? That would be like Usain Bolt watching you run the 100 meter dash. All these heroes are watching me, but that's not what's happening. Think again about that courtroom with the witnesses all waiting in the side room to testify. They're not there to watch you. They're there to bear witness to you uh, about something else. It's almost like you're the jury and the great cloud of witnesses are on the expert witness, are expert witnesses on the witness stand. And so what are they bearing witness to? What is this great cloud of witnesses bearing witness to? Well, they bear witness to the faithfulness of God, which means in a way that they bear witness to Christ before his incarnation. They built their lives upon the promises of God that were only realized fully in Christ. And so like a tree's leaves and branches swaying in the wind bear witness to the wind blowing, the endurance and loyalty and faithfulness of the great cloud of witnesses bears witness to the faithfulness of God and the incarnation of Christ. They bear witness to God keeping his promises. And so the author of Hebrews says, look at all these people bearing witness to the faithfulness of God. Let the witness that they bear encourage you. Let it lead you to cultivate your own endurance, very similar to theirs, to run the race. They were anticipating Christ coming the first time. We're anticipating Christ coming a second time. If the faithfulness of God sustained them before Christ even came, then how much more so, now that Christ has already come once, can we be sustained by the faithfulness of God? And so run the race, the Christian life, the life of faith. Run the race with endurance. Now, as some of you know, I got pretty into cycling during the pandemic. And one thing about cyclists is that, they, is that they are always looking for ways to shed weight, to make their bike 
lighter. It's actually funny, it would be a lot easier to shed weight off of your body, but cyclists are obsessed with shedding weight off of their bikes. And there's actually this whole subculture within cycling called weight weenies. And they are all devoted to making their bikes as light as they can be because a lighter bike, in many respects, is a faster bike. It will be quicker to accelerate, it will be faster going up a hill. And so weight weenies are all about finding ways to upgrade parts on their bike so that it's lighter. Sometimes people will even saw off the end of their handlebars or their steer tube or their seat post. And it can honestly get a little bit crazy. Well, the author of Hebrews uh, says something similar. Uh, Hebrews 12.1 again says, Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. What the author is saying is, just like an athlete in a race must discipline himself, shed extra weight off of himself or from anything he has to carry, we too, in the race that we're running, the life of faith, we must lay aside every weight. And so what are some of the weights that you need to lay aside? If you're running a race, you don't want anything extra with you. And so what are some of the weights that you need to lay aside? There are two ways to think about this. The first and most obvious one is sin. That's what the author of Hebrews follows up with. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And so for all of us, for the rest of our lives, for the remainder of the race, we will need to leave behind sin. It clings and it slows you down in the race. And so get rid of it. Kill it. Confess it. Repent of it. Receive forgiveness for it. Be assured of God's grace for it. Be sanctified. Die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. Lay aside sin. But second, and maybe a little less obvious, what are the things that are perfectly fine in and of themselves, but for you are a weight that hinders you in the race? So like, imagine Usain Bolt again. He's lining up for the 100 meter dash and as he gets into the blocks, uh, he's holding a box that contains his rock collection. You know, maybe he just likes rocks, okay? There's nothing wrong with the rock collection. Rocks are good even, they're God's creation, they can be beautiful, but holding on to his rock collection is going to slow him down in the race. It's not a sin per se, but it slows him down in the race. And so Usain Bolt, in the race that he runs, should shed that weight. He should leave behind the rock collection for his race uh, because it only slows him down. Is there a weight like that for you? You know, something in your life that's not even a sin necessarily, but one way or another, it slows you down in the race. It hinders your life in the faith. You know, if you're running this race, then you gotta lay it aside. What might God be calling you to lay aside in your life? You know, what in your life, when you compare it to the infinite worth of finishing the race of faith, is essentially a waste of time, just something that takes your eyes off of Jesus, ultimately. Maybe it's time you lay it aside. We have a great cloud of witnesses who have borne witness to God's faithfulness through their endurance to finish the race, through the weights that they cast aside, through the loyalty that they demonstrated. And so look at the witness that they bear and let us also lay aside weights 
and sin and run with endurance the race that is set before us. But of course, we don't just look at the witnesses, right? If you were on a jury, you don't primarily care about the witnesses themselves. You care primarily about what the witnesses bear witness to. And so the great cloud of witnesses are great and inspirational, sure, but they're bearing witness to something else. They're bearing witness to someone else. They're bearing witness to Christ, to Jesus, and it's him that we ultimately look at. And that takes us to our second point, the founder of our faith. Imagine what the world would be like if Steve Jobs had never founded Apple. I mean, think about how different things might be. We can't know for sure, but even just Apple's impact on technology as a whole might make it stand to reason that smartphones or personal computers or digital music or tech design or privacy and more would be totally different today if Steve Jobs had never founded Apple. Not to mention there would be no iPhone, no iPad, no MacBook, no I'm a PC, I'm a Mac commercial. The author of Hebrews tells us to look at Jesus, the founder of our faith. He's the founder. Without Jesus, there is no faith. Without Jesus, there is no salvation. Without Jesus, we would still be in our sins with no hope in the world. But he did found it. Jesus is the founder of our faith. And so what exactly does that mean? How did Jesus found it? When did Jesus found it? Well, he founded it in the beginning. You know, one of the interesting things with the great cloud of witnesses is that they both went before Jesus and Jesus went before them. The great cloud of witnesses preceded Jesus' coming, his birth, his incarnation, but Jesus actually existed before them too. Jesus is God, after all. And several New Testament passages bear witness to the fact that Jesus pre-existed the great cloud of witnesses. In fact, he pre-existed creation itself. That's part of how he's the founder of the faith. Before any of the great cloud of witnesses saw God, so to speak, God saw them. Jesus saw them. And so take John chapter 1, for example. It says in John 1, verses 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not made anything that was made. Now, that can sound a little bit mysterious, right? The Word, who is described as a he in John 1, 2. Uh, the Word was God and was with God, and everything was created through him. And so who is this talking about? Well, if we were to skip ahead in John chapter 1 to verse 14, it would become obvious. John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, and John 1, is Jesus. Which means that from the beginning, Jesus was God. Jesus was with God. And through Jesus, everything was made. He's the founder of the faith. He started it all. Jesus says this himself later on in John. John eight fifty eight. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. So Jesus is like Abraham, one of the great cloud of witnesses. You know him, right? Well, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say I was. He says I am, which is interesting, right? Because what Jesus is saying is that, well, one, that he's Yahweh, the covenant Lord, who told Moses his name was Yahweh, which could be translated I am. And so he's saying, in one regard, I'm Yahweh, I'm God. But second, Jesus is also saying that he's the founder of the faith because he has existed from eternity past. You know, talking about a previous period, he says, I am, a present tense verb. In fact, it's not even perfectly accurate to use time-related words to describe Jesus because Jesus transcends time. He's outside of it. He's been there since before the beginning. He's the founder of of the faith. And he's been with his people since the beginning too. Jude 5 says that it was Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. When Moses confronted Pharaoh, when the people covered their doorposts with blood for Passover, when they crossed the Red Sea, when the law was given at Sinai, Jesus was with them. He's God and he saved his people from slavery in Egypt. Or 1 Corinthians 10.4 says that when the people wandered in the desert, it was still Jesus who was with them. When they wandered in the desert for 40 years, Jesus was with them. And if Jesus was with them in Egypt and at Sinai and in the wilderness, and then when they entered the promised land, Jesus was with them. Then when they were ruled by judges, Jesus was with them. When kings reigned in Israel, Jesus was with them. When the kingdom split in two, Jesus was with them. When the northern kingdom was carried off into exile, Jesus was with them. When the southern kingdom was carried off into exile, Jesus was with them. When the people returned from exile back to the land, Jesus was with them. And if Jesus has founded the faith and been with his people since the very beginning, then he is with you too right now. He's been with you your whole life. He's had his eyes on you since before beginning. Do you believe that? Jesus didn't just pop up on the scene when things got bad and uh, manage a crisis. Jesus founded the faith in the very beginning. And just like any good founder would be, he has been watching closely over the faith that he founded ever since. And he cares about what he founded. And he's been intimately involved with each and every step of it. And if that's true, then he's been intimately involved in each and every step of your life too. Your life matters to Jesus because he made you. He founded you so to speak. You know, Kevin Timmons, founded by Jesus in 1990. And look, the imperative in our passage is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we should absolutely do that. That is an important takeaway. But more important than what you are looking at is what Jesus is looking at. And Jesus has been looking at you. So keep your eyes on Jesus, but even if you take them off of him for a moment or longer, his eyes matter a lot more, and his eyes are never coming off of you. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He founded the faith. He founded you, and he is 
with you. That's what Christmas is all about. God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus is with you. Look to Jesus because his eyes are looking at you. Now, because Jesus founded the faith, because he made everything and he's been keeping close watch on everything, he also knows what's gone wrong. He knows what's gone wrong cosmically with the invasion of sin and death, but he also knows what's gone wrong personally for you. He saw you when you were born and he rejoiced. He saw you when you took your first steps and he grinned from ear to ear. But he also saw when you sinned against him and others and his heart was broken. He also saw when people sinned against you and his face turned blood red with righteous anger. Jesus has seen everything that's happened since he founded the faith. He knows that it's gone terribly, terribly wrong. And as Ecclesiastes 7.8 says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Ends are better than beginnings. Finishes are better than starts. It's not enough just to found the faith. It's not enough just to start the faith. He has to finish it. He has to perfect it. And thankfully, Jesus has. And that takes us to our final point, the perfecter of our faith. As I've mentioned several times before, I ran cross country in high school. And when I was a freshman, there was a senior on the team who was the top runner. He was the top runner on our team, but he was even one of the top runners in the whole state of Indiana. And one of the things that made him so good was his ability to push himself to the limit at the end of a race. No joke, he finished more races unconscious than conscious. That's how hard he would push himself. He would get to the final stretch of a race and run so hard that once he passed the finish line, he would just black out. He once described the experience and said that when he was running down the final stretch and beginning to push himself harder and harder, he would begin to see black and the black would start to come in from his left and his right and he would have to fight against the black. He would have to push the black out and focus on the finish line, just hold on a little bit longer until he finished. He crossed the line and he would finally let up and the black would fully come in and he would pass out. But he would finish the race. And you could say that he would finish himself too. Our passage in Hebrews 12 says that Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. Now that word perfecter or the word perfect means to finish, to complete. Jesus is the finisher of our faith. He's the completer of our faith. If you know much about grammar. It's like the perfect tense, completed action. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. Jesus finished our faith. He completed it. Jesus lived his entire life in unbroken and unquestioning faith in his Father in heaven. All the great cloud of witnesses were tremendous examples of faith, but they didn't have faith like Jesus. They faltered sometimes. They failed sometimes. Jesus never faltered. Jesus never failed. He was without sin. He always trusted his Father. Even when it was unbearable. 
Our passage in Hebrews 12.2 says, To look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You know, there's this scene at the end of Jesus' life that absolutely blows me away when we reconcile it with our Hebrews 12.2 verse. At the end of Jesus' life, <clears throat> when he knows what he's about to endure, the cross, he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, he understands perfectly what's about to happen. He is going to go to the cross. He's going to endure an absolutely excruciating, physical, painful death. Nails through his hands, nails through his feet, hung on a cross until his body would eventually exhaust itself and he would be unable to straighten his back to just take the next breath. And so most crucifixions would ultimately end in death by suffocation. That's what Jesus was headed toward. But not just the physical pain. He was about to undergo tremendous, unimaginable spiritual pain, torment, as he bared God's wrath against sin on the cross. And Jesus knows all this. He knows that that's what's coming. And he's in the garden praying, and he feels absolutely awful. The Bible says that he is so sorrowful that he's sweating blood. And he prays to his Father in heaven an absolutely amazing, perfect prayer. If there is another way, Father, please let this cup pass from me. But ultimately, let not my will but yours be done. And I think that's just such a perfect model for prayer. I mean, first of all, just be honest. Jesus was honest with his Father. If there's another way, I would prefer that. But then second, submit yourself to God's will. Let not my will, but yours be done. And unlike when God told Abraham on the mountain with Isaac that there was, in fact, another way, the ram that God provided, Jesus was told that there wasn't another way. There was no other lamb. And so Jesus would have to be the lamb. Jesus would have to endure the cross, and he did. He perfected the faith. He finished it. He completed it. That's what he says with his last dying breath. It is finished. It is complete. It is perfected. And what's crazy to me, if we bring Hebrews 12 to into the scene, is that Jesus did this because there was joy that was set before him in doing so. Sweating blood, being told by his, no, by his Father in heaven, dying on the cross. All of that somehow brought Jesus joy. How in the world could that possibly bring Jesus joy? joy? Well, two reasons. First, it brought joy to Jesus to perfectly conform to the will of his Father. Obedience brings joy. It brings joy to Jesus, and it brings joy to us too. But second, it brought Jesus joy to endure the cross because that's how he got you. Enduring the cross is how he saved us. And that brought Jesus joy, the sweating blood, the being told no by his father, the death on a cross was worth it because he got you. And so Jesus finished the faith that he founded. He perfected it. 
he became like us. As Philippians 2 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus perfected the faith that he founded. He did what we could not do. He finished what we could not finish. He completed what we couldn't complete. And so God raised him up from the dead. That's how we know that what Jesus did worked. That's how we know that it was perfect because God raised him from the dead. And then Jesus ascended up into heaven. And as Hebrews 12, 2 says, he is there now seated because the work is done, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's where we're all headed to, to heaven with Jesus at the right hand of the throne of God. If you are a member of the faith, if you are in Christ, that is where you're headed, to heaven with Jesus, the right hand of the throne of God. And when we get there, Jesus's joy will be complete because Jesus has joy in dying for you. Jesus has joy in saving you. Jesus has joy in waiting for you. And Jesus has joy to share with you now and when we finally join him at the right hand of God. Jesus has come once for his joy that was set before him, and he's coming again for even more joy that's set before him. And so as we go out from here on this first Sunday after Christmas, let's look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And let's look to the joy that he has in having us somehow. Look at Jesus's joy and let that joy become your joy. And let's take that joy and the joy that's to come and let it sink into our hearts and share it with others also. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you've provided so many witnesses to your faithfulness. Father, we pray that we would believe that you are faithful, that you are a God who keeps your promises and that the greatest example of you keeping your promise is sending your son into the world, Jesus, as a little baby at Christmas, growing into a man who would one day die for our sins because it brought him joy. We ask, Lord, that Jesus's joy would become our joy, that it would sink into our hearts and that we would share it with others. We pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen.